Midlands Today on Midlands 183 with O'Brien's Mullingar. It's official Westmeath. No county loves Renault more. P.O.Brien.ie Midlands Today with Aidan Barry on Midlands 183. And a very good morning to you. Welcome along. It is Aidan Barry in for Will Faulkner this morning on Midlands Today. It's Tuesday, the 17th of May, 2022. I uh, hope you're keeping well this morning. and It's nice to be with you. It's uh, quite a grey day out there this morning, uh, but it has dried up after the morning rain, certainly in the Tullamore area anyway, at least. Now, what have we got coming up on the programme this morning? What is the state of play currently in Ukraine? Uh, yesterday, there were two main events. The Ukrainians were hailing victory around the second city of Kharkiv, um, while the Russians were announcing kind of a, uh, a victory with the ending of the siege at the steel plant in Mariupol. We'll be talking about that in the next uh, 15 to 20 minutes. And uh, what is uh, the current state as well also with uh, Sweden and Finland joining uh, NATO are signalling an intent to join NATO and what's our own readiness here in Ireland around our own defence. We'll be exploring all that in the next while. Uh, we'll also hear about an appeal for people to volunteer at some upcoming Midlands events and the whole area of volunteering and how to cherish people who do put their time aside to volunteer. We'll be talking about that. And of course, we couldn't but mention this that happened last night in O'More Park. It's Leash 13, awfully 21. We're into the fourth, deep into the fourth minute of additional time. It is Leinster Minor Hurling Championship final. The ball is poked out from the awfully goalkeeper. And with that, the referee blows for full time. The awfully fans and youngsters stream onto the field in their hundreds here to celebrate. Awfully have got their Leinster Championship, their first since the year, the millennium year in 2000. Leash's weight will go on, but certainly there's building blocks here in the two counties in the Midlands to really set them up for a generation to come. I think today, we're privileged to be in O'Moore Park to broadcast this match in front of such a large crowd. Such a large crowd indeed. There were 12,500 there last night. That was the voice of Joe Troy reporting from Midlands 103 last night, just around 9pm, when uh, Offaly secured a victory over their neighbours' leash. It was a unique final because uh, Offaly and Leash don't often, while they might appear in finals, generally they're taking on the likes of Kilkenny or Dublin or Wexford. Yesterday it was Offaly and Leash taking on each other, the near neighbours, for a first time, a novel final. And it was a great game as well, a very tight first half. There was only two points in it at half time. Uh, with great uh, play in particular by Adam Screeny with his free taking in the first half and then an incredible few scores in particular in the early second half by Dan Ravenhill which helped Offaly pull a little bit into the lead and kind of forced Leash to go for goals a bit and uh, basically the uh, Offaly defence held out. Final score was Offaly 21 points, Leash 13. We'll be talking a little bit more about it last night but I see that Shane Lowry who has his hands full at the moment because, he's, of course, he's busily preparing out in Southern Hills in Tulsa, also Oklahoma, ahead of the US PGA. He tweeted last night, he said, spread the good news around the world. Fantastic result in O'Moore Park. Offaly are Leinster minor hurler champ- hurling champions. Our first provincial title at this grade in 22 years. So it's great to know the man who has shown such great interest uh, was keeping an eye on the result last night as well. Uh, were you at the match? We'd love to hear from you if you were there and your um, your thoughts on the game and hard luck to Leash as well Leash had earlier beaten they were the team that had knocked out Kilkenny and Wexford the two I suppose big teams in the province uh, Offaly had beaten Dublin so uh, as I say it was a novel pairing last night but we'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on it 083 30 10 103 
Now, let's take a quick look at the uh, newspapers this morning. And uh, a lot of the papers have the photograph of uh, Santina Coley, um, the young two-year-old who died back in 2019. Uh, The mother of the murdered two-year-old had questioned how anyone could kill a defenceless child after a jury convicted 38-year-old woman of uh, Santina Cawley's murder in Cork almost three years ago. And uh, there's quite a lot of coverage in the papers today, including the mother of uh, Santina, uh, that's uh, Bridget O'Donoghue. She was giving her victim impact statement in court yesterday, and that full impact statement can be read in the Irish Examiner today as well, but her words are echoed throughout the papers and the photograph of little Santina stares out of the papers this morning to us. Uh, It's a a really, really desperate story, a very sad story indeed. The other story that's also making the headlines today is uh, about the uh, visit of Boris Johnson to Belfast yesterday. Johnson signals unilateral action on Northern Ireland. Well, we're not sure. We have to wait until today and see what his uh, foreign minister, uh, Liz Truss, will do uh, in relation to Brexit, in particular to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Of course, there have been all sorts of accusations fired at the British government that they've signed up to this arrangement, and now why would they go and break it? But to say all eyes on uh, the UK government today to see what they announce and then to see what the EU response is. But by all accounts, there were some pretty tough meetings yesterday in Belfast with Boris Johnson. A lot of hard questions asked of his signals in the whole thing and see how the British Conservative Party will play this out. Uh, Certainly, they seem to be the people who are stalling uh, at the moment and causing a lot of the grief in Northern Ireland and a lot of people very angry with them. We'll see, see how that develops. Another thing we're looking at today as well, reported in the papers, is to see what happens in relation to the National Maternity Hospital. As you will remember, back in 2013, it was proposed that they would move the maternity hospital, the National Maternity, from Hollis Street to the grounds of Vincent's Hospital. Uh, but uh, there was the catch with Vincent's that the Sisters of Charity Trust are involved in that, in particular uh, in relation now to the fact that the hospital will be on these grounds and the government don't own the grounds of the hospital outright. And the question then was, would they Catholic ethos of the Sisters of Charity uh, take some kind of um, hold over this new hospital and would some of the services, including abortions, would they be allowed to take place? Uh, So there's been a lot of argument about it. Uh, There was discussion two weeks ago when it was supposed to be passed and it was held up for two weeks, but it looks like it will go through today. So we keep an eye on that story today in National Maternity Hospital in Dublin. Um, You may have heard as well with uh, discussion as well on the uh, consumption of alcohol in outdoor areas. This was something that came up during COVID times and of course the Gardaí um, uh, had problems with it last year and the law was uh, due to lapse in May of this year. But now, however, uh, Minister for Justice Helen McEntee will bring a memo to Cabinet uh, on today seeking a six-month extension. What it'll mean is that they're going to extend a temporary law to make sure the sale and consumption of alcohol in outdoor seating areas of public and restaurants can continue now through May and right through the summer and up until late November. The law was introduced last year when the Gorda Shikona said temporary outdoor areas for eating and drinking introduced during COVID-19 restrictions were not covered by the licensing law. So, and you'll remember as well there were a lot of photographs and pictures on the TV from uh, Dublin City where people were consuming alcohol in outdoor areas but it was leading to some difficulties. But anyway, uh, the law is going to be extended and we'll see how that goes. You heard on the news there, Alan, on the news talking about the Irish community in shock after a popular GA player and dad of one dies suddenly in the US. 
Uh, tributes are being paid to an exceptionally talented Irishman who died suddenly in the United States, Paddy Brannigan, originally from Great Cullen on the Leash Carlo border. He passed away on Sunday in Alabama. The 30-year-old was an adored father of a young boy and a skillful GA player who had represented his local club and county Leash at minor and under 21 levels. That's a huge shock for the community and a really sad story to read today as well in the papers. The uh, Irish Independent today on a good news thing are saying that signs that maybe the property market is on the verge of peaking and it might offer hope to house hunters. The property market is about to peak and the recent booming rate of price rises will begin to ease, experts predict. Prices have surged by 15.2% in the year to March, but the monthly increase of 0.6% was down from January when prices were jumping close to 1%. Um, So if the trend is maintained, it would mean that the market is about to peak and that's something that might see house price inflation easing later this year. And I'm sure there are a lot of couples who are looking to buy houses and so on, maybe holding off looking to hear that. Now, the last time I was on the programme last week, we were talking about climate change and and we were talking to a climatologist. And uh, the stories in the paper today, again, of course, we're familiar with all these high temperature stories from Australia, with all the the fires around Australia in recent years. And also the the high temperatures from Western America and Western Canada last year. Well, wait for this one. Birds are now falling from the sky as India's temperatures break records. Birds are falling from the sky in Western India due to exhaustion and dehydration hydration as scorching scorching heat waves continue for the third month the long-running heat wave spell has continued to bake citizens in delhi after record temperatures breached an unprecedented 49 degrees mark uh, I was just checking to see what the temperature in the Midlands this morning was. Temperature this morning, it is quite mild and quite muggy. It's uh, 15 degrees. They were 49 degrees in Delhi. Uh, in the western states of uh, India, where temperature has hovered above 40 for weeks now, it's set to touch 46 in several pockets, and rescuers are coming across birds that have fallen from the sky. Um, I say it's just another um, uh, case of these rising temperatures, which is very worrying indeed. Now, again, you may have heard on the sports news there with Alan about the Premier League. Uh, the Premier League is due to finish next Sunday. And last night, there was a major turn in the battle for four place, of course. Uh, Spurs, the two uh, London clubs, Spurs and Arsenal, have been battling it out. And last night, there was a major upset for Arsenal fans because they were beaten away to Newcastle. They were beaten 2-0. That means that Spurs, who had won at the weekend, now stay in fourth place. And with both teams only with one game to to play, if Spurs win their game, Arsenal will finish fifth. So that's a major body blow to them last night. It was expected that Arsenal might win that and go in with a lead into the final game of the season. And Arsenal also have the tougher game on Sunday. They're playing Everton, who are still in a relegation fight, uh, while Spurs are away to Norwich, who are relegated. And uh, tonight as well, uh, Liverpool are taking on Southampton and Liverpool trying to keep the pressure on Man City. There's quite a lot of battles. There's battle going on for first place, fourth place and relegation there. So the Premier League has kept it going right up to the very end. And our final story on the programme this morning, um, and this is in relation to... um, uh, Derry Girls. Derry Girls, if you're a big fan of Derry Girls, you'll know that the uh, second last episode of it is on tonight uh, on Channel 4. And then tomorrow night they're doing a one hour special. Uh, the Series 3 finale will be broadcast on Channel 4 with a one hour extended episode, um, which is going to basically 
signal the end of the comedy drama, it'll return to Derry a year after tonight's episode, if you like, as the gang prepare to celebrate Aaron and Orla's uh, 18th birthday party. But it's also the announcement of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, I think that's around mid-1990s, wasn't that 1995? So it's uh, the final episode. So if you're a Derry Girls fan, you have to binge on it tonight and tomorrow night, but that's the end of it. Season three was always signalled that that was going to be uh, the end of Derry Girls. But what has been a great success, huge success, and uh, um, Nicola Coughlin, of course, we mentioned her before, has gone on to do great things in um, Bridgerton. And uh, I know the other actress who plays Michelle in it has also done an English drama as well with Channel 4 called Screw, which was set in a, a prison drama uh, back for Channel 4. And, of course, uh, Tommy Turner was involved, a lot of Irish actors involved. Um, terrific series anyway great fun uh, if you have any ideas on uh, Derry Girls and your views on it do you enjoy it some people find it good in places and then they find other episodes not so funny uh, we'd love to hear your ideas on it 083 30 10 103 now welcome back to the programme in deep conversation here with Cahill Berry who of course is independent TD for Kildare South and living in Port Arrington and Cahill you were at the match last night yeah it, yeah, fantastic uh, atmosphere altogether like standing room only really uh, thousands of people uh, big traffic jam on the way and on the way back but the only kind of traffic jams you, you like being in. And uh, were you cheering for awfully religious to be questioned? <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, tr- cheering for the miners, you know. Yeah. So very careful at Port Arrington. Obviously, <laughs> a third of the town is in Offaly and two thirds are in Leash. Uh, but a fantastic game. Uh, it was anyone's game at halftime. It was really, yeah. It was, yeah. Offaly just up the gears then for the second half. Yeah, serious long range points, weren't they? Outstanding, really brilliant. Outstanding, outstanding skill. Like uh, even just the, the cut from the sideline. I mean, that's just yeah. the, the ultimate skill in any sport I- in the world, you know, to, to pop it over the bar like that was just incredible. Absolutely. Well, you're here to talk about, first of all, we're going to talk about the situation in Ukraine at the moment. There were kind of two major announcements from Ukraine yesterday. One was um, where the Ukrainians were signaling kind of victory around the second city there of Kharkiv um, and edging towards the kind of Russian border, if you like. And then down south later on, around Mariupol, where there's been this siege going on for so long, uh, it, it appears like, like a Russian victory where the, the last of the uh, fighters in the steel plant uh, seem to have been evacuated last night into kind of Russian-held territory. Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, pr- precisely. So there's, there's two things going on, as you said. So the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive in the northeast and around Kharkiv is very successful. They, they reached the internationally recognised border between the Russian Federation and Ukraine yesterday, and that's a very symbolic as well as a tactical mm. victory for Ukraine. And then in the south, the, the south port city of Mariupol, it looks like the siege is coming to an end after about 83 days. And um, it looks like the, the Ukrainian... Uh, soldiers and the Marines are laying down their weapons. Um, they really have achieved their aim, really. I mean, they denied a, a major victory to, to Putin for the 9th of May for his Victory in Europe Day celebrations on Red Square, but also they demonstrated to the world, really, that, that the Ukrainians are tenacious, they're, they're determined, they're highly professional, and they're a group of people that are worth supporting, and that's why you see so many weapons from the international community making its way to Ukraine at the moment, that people recognise that they're, they're worthy of being supported. Now that that siege looks like it's over, does that mean that the, that will free up Russian forces to advance from that position to a more north northeasterly position? Then, yeah, yeah, it will in time. But what the Russians have to do first is consolidate. I mean, they got badly mauled in Mariupol. There's no doubt about it. And really, they were humbled by a very small uh, Ukrainian force of only about two thousand people. The concern would be that once the Russians uh, consolidate, and that'll take them a, a week or so, they might start moving on uh, Odessa, which is obviously 
the large, the, the, the last of the large, large ports uh, there. port that Ukraine actually owns, based in the Black Sea. And if they take Odessa, they'd have completely turned Ukraine into a landlocked country, which would have major repercussions geopolitically from a world food point of view, because a lot of the grain and a lot of the fertilizer comes from Ukraine. So that could have implications for Ireland as well. All right. Um, and in terms of how do you see it progressing over the coming months? Like uh, everybody's saying at this stage, it's a long war, you know, that you have these intense battles going on. The Ukrainians holding out for so long. Uh, weapons being supplied by the West. Uh, how do you see it developing from here? Yeah, great question. Just stalemate is the word I would use. I don't think either side has the military capability to have a decisive victory over the other. So it'll just grind on. And I think eventually what's going to happen is the, the public support on one side will collapse whether it's the Ukrainian side or, or the Russian side. Mm. Uh, it's, it's one of those kinds, but we don't know yet. But I mean, all the Ukrainian public seem to be almost 100% behind their president, um, behind their armed forces, behind the sovereignty of their country. They're fighting for their homeland, mm. whereas the Russians, they don't really know what they're fighting for. And you can see that even in the, the video clips, when you see how the, the Russian troops uh, carry themselves and you compare that to how the Ukrainian troops carry themselves, one side has pride and one side basically just doesn't know why they're there. Know where it's going. Uh, what do you make then, just on recent days, uh, of the announcements by Sweden and Finland uh, signalling their intent to join NATO in the coming whatever it is, weeks, months, years? We're not sure how long the application is going to take. But uh, what do you make of those things? Understandably, I suppose there's a lot of tension in Northern Europe now, given what has happened. But uh, for two countries that for so long were kind of had no uh, kind of alignment to any military thing, for them to step up and say now we're going to join NATO, that's a huge thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it it totally changes the the security landscape in Northern Europe, particularly in the Baltic Sea and in the Arctic Ocean as well. But it further emphasizes and and highlights what a massive miscalculation uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine was from a tactical point of view, because they've been utterly humbled by the Ukrainian army but also from a strategic point of view. One of the reasons, one of the bogus reasons that were advanced at the start was he wanted to stop NATO expansion towards Russia, whatever that means, um, but he ended up actually accelerating the process. So it just shows the, the massive miscalculation he took. And we spoke with Will the last time about this, this Russian word called mistroika, which is all about deception. And they tried to deceive their, their opponents, they tried to keep them off balance, but... I guess in this example, the only people they deceived uh, were their own people and their own uh, government and their own Kremlin, basically, that the Russians actually ended up deceiving themselves. The, the, the invasion was fought under false pretenses and the basic assumptions that they made at the start have proven to be utterly, utterly false. Is there a difference, let's say, in the situation for Finland, given the, the length of their border directly with Russia, as distinct from Sweden? Are they in two different situations? Yeah, absolutely. Like any two sovereign countries, there's going to be quirks and, and differences on both sides. Finland are obviously on the very front line. And Finland is a little bit different. In, in 1939, they fought a, a major war with Russia. Obviously, it was quite similar to the Ukrainian situation where mm-hmm. Russia was the aggressor. Russia unprovoked, uh, was unprovoked and uh, invaded uh, without any notice. And the Finns fought valiantly for a number of months. But eventually, there was a settlement and Finland had to surrender about 10% of its territory to, to Russia. Um, so there's a lot of past experience and a lot of the Finns that I know will say there's unfinished business on the, the Finnish uh, Russian border and uh, I think the, the Russians will be very very wary about provoking the Finns again in light of uh, what happened in the Winter War in 1939. 
All right, that's very interesting. And then just turning it into Ireland to our own readiness, because there's been a lot of discussion given what has happened. And I think as well after the showing of that video um, in Ireland, you know, where Ireland was being wiped out. And I know yesterday they were talking to the papers, they'd look for an apology and no apology was given. But uh, a lot uh, has turned to our own readiness. And I think Simon Coveney um, made the point in the last uh, week or two about the need for our army to expand and we need about 3,000 more troops. Um, uh, Where where do you see that going at the moment given, let's say, the difficulties there are around pay scales for uh, apprentices and recruits? Yeah, well, we definitely need to upgrade our our defence and security of of the country for sure. So there was a net loss of 2,000 defence force personnel in the last 10 years alone. So two-thirds of that 3,000 will only get us back to where we were in 2010. And that just shows the the scale of the the asset stripping and the the downgrading of of our military over the last 10 years. So currently, uh, just to answer your question about 3,000, it really is only a press release. It's connected to nothing. It's only an aspiration. I, I agree with the with the aspiration, but there's no chance of even getting 300 unless the terms and conditions and the pay rates change. Well, what are the pay rates at the moment? Like, what what can let's say an apprentice expect to earn uh, at the moment? What are the pay like? And in terms of them doing any kind of extra hours or overtime or working weekends and so on, what is that? Uh, yeah situation on that? That's, that's a great question Aidan. Yeah, so so the, the pay rates start very, very small so an apprentice technician starts about 16,000 euro gross a year and a recruit would start around 21,000 gross a year but the big problem is really it's it's the lack of overtime. So they can do as many hours or they can be tasked or detailed for as many hours in the week as they as the, the authorities see fit but they get you know a pittance uh, maybe an extra 3 or 4 euro an hour for that overtime uh, which is highly illegal practice I mean there is a minimum wage here uh, in this country for good reason if you're a guard or a firefighter or a nurse or a paramedic quite rightly you get paid for your shift work shift, that you do yeah. and the same should apply to, to the military So what are the hopes for them as you say it is an aspiration for 3000 have they any hopes what could they expect to get um, over the coming years in terms of recruitment drive so, so they need to attack those pay scales, first of all. Uh, absolutely. So there's been a net loss of Defence Force personnel every year for the last 10 years. So nothing's going to change uh, unless the circumstances change. Now, there's a report going to government in about maybe four weeks' time, Simon Coveney's memo that he's bringing to government, and there are opportunities there to improve the pay scales because the Commission of the Defence Forces recommended that. I suppose if you look at why we are where we are, though, it's, it's because the military are not allowed to join any trade union they're not allowed to engage in any industrial action whatsoever. They have no access to the Workplace Relations Commission and, crucially, they have no access to the Labour Court at all. So while we ask them to defend us, we give them no means to defend themselves and that's why they're being completely exploited at the moment. But in terms of defence, you couldn't really have them joining a union, could you, uh, at the same time? You appreciate their, their circumstances, but you couldn't have a strike with the army. I agree entirely, and 99% of the military would agree with you too. Um, I guess what you need to do to counteract that is that you expect the government to bat for you then. That while our troops fight for our government, uh, they expect that the government will fight for them when the circumstances uh, uh, require it. And there is an opportunity at Cabinet next month to right a lot of the wrongs of the past. People recognise that our troops can't engage in industrial action or they're not a member of a trade union, or they have no access to those industrial relations mechanisms. But that's where the minister and the rest of his cabinet colleagues need to come in uh, and write that wrong. OK. Cahill, thank you for coming in this morning. I appreciate you coming into the studio as well. And thanks for all your knowledge as well on it as well. Um, that Enjoy is Cahill uh, Berry. He's independent TD for Kildare South. Living in Port Arrington, we were talking about that about the match at the start, as member of the Oireachtas Foreign Affairs and Defence Committee and former Army Rangers. Isn't that right at all?
get in. Thanks okay, you. thank you, Carl. Aidan Barry is sitting in for Will Faulkner today. If you want to contact the program, it's 083 30 10 103 on text or WhatsApp. We're now going to go to the uh, phone lines and we're going to talk to Peter Ormond, who's manager of the Westmead Volunteer Centre. Uh, he's going to talk to us all about volunteering and National Volunteer Week and then some upcoming events and upcoming uh, volunteer projects that need your attention. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Aidan, and thanks very much for having me on. Uh, tell us, first of all, uh, Peter, about the Westmead Volunteer Centre. What do you do? Yeah, Westmead Volunteer Centre is, is an organisation under the umbrella of Westmead Community Development. And basically what we do is provide a placement service between um, individuals and groups who want to undertake volunteer activity and organisations then that are seeking to, to involve volunteers. Um, our primary function then is to match volunteers and organisations interested in volunteering with appropriate opportunities then. Okay, so and uh, it's na- when is National Volunteer Week? Yeah, this, this week is uh, National Volunteer Week and uh, it's been run right across the country. And uh, really what the theme of this year's event is, uh, it's celebrating uh, community volunteers for the work that they've done over the past number, last 12 months. And uh, could you tell me as well, I know there was a meeting, uh, wasn't there a kind of a national meeting of all the volunteer centres in Athlone back at the beginning of April, isn't that right? That's right. Yeah, that's where all the volunteers came to get volunteer centres came together, and uh, that that conference, I suppose, a meeting was to was to I suppose uh, share the experiences that each of us had had over the last twelve months, and also putting a, a, a time frame and a work plan in place for the coming twelve months, how we can achieve our targets and, and help help people who are interested in volunteering get involved, and, and also organisations that have volunteer opportunities. How long have these volunteer centres been in operation, Peter? Yeah, we, we've been we've been in, in in operation since 1996. But uh, um, the minister last year rolled them out right right around the country, and uh, would like to say that Offaly and Leash now have new volunteer centres and, and they're up and running and doing very good work. Brilliant. Okay, so tell us first of all, what advice would you give to the organisation? So you have a number of organisations; they need volunteers. What kind of advice do you give them about preparing for volunteers coming in while the volunteers are there, and uh, I suppose keeping those volunteers then in the organisation? What kind of uh, preparation uh, yeah. or what kind of courses do you give to those uh, organisations? Yeah, yeah, we we do training uh, um, with with all organisations and and indeed um, ind- individuals who put their names forward. And um, as I said to you at the very start, our, our primary function is to match the individuals and the groups that are interested in volunteering with with the appropriate volunteer opportunities. So I think that that's very important. And, and we also we always say to organisations um, to to make the volunteer opportunities um, really worthwhile. You know, I mean, get people involved, get collaboration going, and that people get. Um, a feel good factor about about volunteering and um look there's loads and loads of volu- enthusiastic volunteers out there um we, we we have loads of people looking to volunteer and even just I was looking at our our, our CRI system there this morning and so far in Westmead alone we've over 3000 3, hours of volunteering done this year so that's fantastic volunteering is a volunteering yeah. is a in the midlands thank god and do you think uh, that during COVID times it did suffer because so many organisations, I suppose, everybody was kind of staying indoors and everybody was avoiding uh, any kind of, uh, I suppose, community involvement? Uh, did did it take a hit during that time? Yeah, well, look, I suppose lots lots of our organisations that would be would be primarily running events weren't able to run events, but look, the community were fantastic and and reacted very positively to it. And and uh, look, in terms of the COVID response plans, the co- people out there working with their neighbours, their friends, people didn't stop volunteering; they just done it a different type of way. And, and we we've seen that right throughout the, the the Midlands. 
Okay. Uh, you want to highlight in particular a couple of things, um, uh, projects and uh, upcoming events that need volunteers. Uh, one was uh, obviously the Ukrainian refugee uh, appeals in Ireland as well, and there are appeals for volunteers to help out at the moment. Um, is that right, Peter? Yes? Yeah, yeah. Look, I suppose, um, yes, since, since I suppose the start of March, um, all volunteer centres have been involved in, in the new community forums that have been set up um, and to assist and help people who've come from who come from um, Ukraine and I must say the response uh, has been very 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 positive and, and uh, the, the centres have been inundated with nothing but goodwill and people looking to help in, in, in every way so I, I would say to, to people um, out there who, who, who feel they can help the, the displaced Ukrainians is to look keep an eye on the volunteer centres uh, social media pages keep an eye on the websites and the opportunities are coming up there the whole time um, in terms of um people looking to look, looking to assist and I've, i i just um, mentioned i i see in our own our own website here like new horizons here based based in that loan have uh, lots of opportunities for people to volunteer and assist people who, who are working with the displaced for the ukrainians here on, on a weekly basis and um i suppose Aidan, i'd like to just say that it just it doesn't have to be um you know i mean it doesn't have to be long term volunteering can be for a couple of hours a day a couple of hours a week a couple of hours a month it might be just a one-off event you know what i mean so if people are interested in volunteering i think they should take up the opportunity and, and, and not be afraid, afraid to put their names forward okay and one such event that will offer that opportunity maybe for a set period of time is the upcoming flag hole in mullingar and they are looking for volunteers for that as well isn't that true yeah, look, this is going to be the biggest event in in in, in the Midlands in in a, in a long, long time, and uh, um, we're working on a subcommittee with the Flag Hill, um, headed up by uh, headed up by uh, Julia Dalton, and uh, again, we we have over 400 people have registered to date uh, to volunteer for this event, but um, our target is somewhere between 800 and 1,000, and uh, we that encourage people to volunteer for that that event in 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 the coming weeks. Um, we'll be providing training, and again, if you have four hours, eight hours, a couple of days, a couple of slots, um, we'd, we'd welcome you to register on our website and put your name forward for it. But it's certainly going to be the biggest. Uh, it's going to be the biggest event in, in the Midlands, and uh, look, volunteerism is at the centre and the core of, of what the flag you all do. So we really want to showcase uh, Mullingar and Westmead and, and how we can best promote volunteering for that event. Brilliant. Okay, Peter, thank you for taking our call this morning. And uh, if people want to find out more about your uh, Westmead Volunteer Centre, there is a website, isn't there? Yeah, there, 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 is, a, there is a website, uh, uh, www.volunteerwestmead.ie. And okay. also, yeah, we have a Westmead Community Development there as well. We have a website there as well. Brilliant. Okay, Peter, thank you for taking our call this morning. Okay, thanks very much, Aidan. Thank you. That's uh, Peter Ormond. He's manager of the Westmead Volunteer Centre, and they are looking, you can hear that, uh, they need another, another four to 600 volunteers for the All Ireland Fla, which takes place uh, in Mullingar in the first week of August. So maybe you'll uh, help out there. It'd be great to get you involved. Now, still to come before 11 o'clock this morning, we're going to be hearing about. Uh, uh, Concern about the uh, pressure mounting on government to clarify when this year's leaving search results will be uh, issued. We'll be hearing about that in about 20 minutes' time. Uh, we'll also, a little bit later on, be hearing about the great match that was in Port Leash last night between Offaly and Leash, Offaly emerging victors after that. And don't forget, of course, today is uh, Tuesday. We have health matters from uh, half past 10 as well. So if you'd like to get a message in about that or have a question, um, we'll be covering your topics from about 10.30 on 
on that. So uh, 083 30 103. And now we're going to talk about the National Maternity Hospital because the deal for moving the National Maternity Hospital to the St. Vincent's Hospital campus in Dublin 4 is set to be approved by the Cabinet today. The agreement, the agreement is unchanged following a fortnight of intense debate over the ownership and the ethos of the new hospital. We're going to talk now to uh, Sarah Clark, uh, Sinn Féin TD for Longford, about the Sinn Féin reservations in this area. Good morning, Deputy Clark. Good morning, Aidan. How are you today? I'm good, I'm good. So um, this is expected to be passed by the Cabinet today. What are your reservations in relation to the moving of the National Maternity Hospital in the current agreement? Well, as, as we know, the divestment of the Religious Sisters of Charity to St Vincent's Hospital Group happened there in April, just gone. And the proposal for relocation is actually in the form of a 299-year lease of the site. Now, leasehold interest does not confer the comfort, the control or the unencumbered rights which are inherent in freehold ownership. But really what's of deep concern here is that there is an undefined and a rather ambiguous term, clinical appropriateness test which to many clinicians and legal professionals and also women, the length and breadth of this country, have been raising concern over due to that ambiguity and for the potential for court action by either the landlord or a third party that may disagree with the HSE or the National Maternity Hospital's interpretation at some point of something over the next 299 years. So Sinn Féin this evening will be bringing forward a motion to give all TDs an opportunity to compel the government to ensure that the National Maternity Hospital is a public hospital on public land. Okay, there are kind of three issues for me here. Can uh, can I just start by saying, if there is a delay on this, and if you go for a move of public land, aren't you pushing this very important development uh, in maternity care for women much further down the line, uh, whereas this agreement passing today would see uh, immediate benefit, well, fairly soon, uh, once the building is complete? Uh, Would this not just delay things and make matters worse for women and children? There is no doubt and nobody is disputing that the National Maternity Hospital is a vital project to provide much needed improvement in all aspects of women's healthcare. It needs to be built and it needs to be operational as soon as possible. However, expedience can't be used to to dilute in any way rights now or rights that may exist in the future. There are serious questions that have yet to be answered by government and by the minister. And we cannot simply ask the women of Ireland to take a leap of faith that this will meet their needs as it stands today and into the future. Now, the government has been very dismissive in their attitude towards concerns, and that's deeply concerning. And it has failed to provide reassurances on these really important issues Women's health care in Ireland has a very painful history and it's crucial that not only are lessons learned from that, but also that there is a process put in place that women can have confidence in and that women can receive the best possible care without any ideological interference into it. And ultimately, Aidan, this is taxpayers' money. We are talking about the women of Ireland today and future generations. There can be no possible interference on any aspect of healthcare that is to be provided on demand as opposed to it being that clinically appropriateness that that is spoke of in this contract. And the very easy way for that to be ensured is that this hospital is built as a public hospital and built on public land. 
Can we focus on that phrase about clinical appropriateness? Because that has really cropped up as a major stumbling block in this uh, whole debate as well. Is, um, are you saying that the clinical appropriateness uh, could be tested in the sense that people might decide that something like an abortion might be clinically, devi- uh, you know, because of the involvement of a Catholic ethos, could define that as clinically inappropriate? Or is it some other matter around that? What is your understanding of the term and what is your problem with the term? But the term clinical appropriateness doesn't actually give any weight to the want and to the need of a woman to have a certain procedure carried out. Now, you mentioned um, termination of pregnancy there. Do also remember that since 2015, there's been a 45% increase in gynaecology waiting lists. And the number of people who have been waiting more than 12 months has increased by 67%. So this is a broad range of women's health care. It's not one specific um, point of it. We want better maternity services. We want better standards for women to receive the health care that they want in an appropriate setting. And any ambiguity around that clinical appropriateness essentially removes from women the option to say, I want this and I would like it now potentially even down to reversible long-term contraceptives. But could the term not refer to the fact that uh, it is going to be a national maternity hospital so that the clinical procedures going on there are appropriate to a hospital of its nature so that they wouldn't carry out back surgery or they wouldn't carry out other clinical operations there that are inappropriate for a maternity hospital? Does the phrase not mean that? It would in certain circumstances, but you look at any other maternity hospital and the services that they provide there, they are not always limited to simply maternity services. They could also be involved in reproductive services, be that IVF or some other um, assisted pregnancies that's there. Like all the activities at the new National Maternity Hospital at Ellen Park, so this is under the St Vincent's group, are going to be subject to this really convoluted governance agreement involving the directors appointed by St Vincent's Hospital Group the National Maternity Charter Trust, the Minister for Health, and also three separate companies with three separate constitution boards and sets of directors. This is far too complicated. It is leaving open far too many areas for interpretation that would would be removed very simply if this was a public hospital built on public land where the the delivery of services is based on women's need, also subject to to medical need, but that there would be no possible ideological interference at all at any point over the next 299 years. And uh, is, is it fair to make a distinction between um, the National Maternity Hospital, which has its own ethos sitting on land holding, which I accept is not owned by the government or owned by the state, but uh, aren't there two different things in, in operation here? Haven't you got uh, a national maternity hospital which can act independently sitting on land, which I accept is uh, maybe owned by this holdings group? But can't a distinction be made there and that, that the land situation is not really a fair argument? Well, I think we're back to that point that you've raised there, is that you're asking the women of Ireland to take a leap of faith, and that's just simply not good enough. Again, this is the, com- the, the governance arrangement around here is so complicated that it is virtually impossible to say what will or will not happen into the future, and that's not good enough. We need to get beyond these vague commitments, and we need to be able to provide the women of today and into the future that there will be absolute cast-iron guarantees and black and white that all legally permissible services will be available to those who want them. 
Okay, listen, uh, thank you for your time this morning um, and thank you for taking time to explain the situation to us as well. And that debate will carry on today as well in the Dáil. Uh, Sirica Clark, uh, Sinn Féin TD for Longford Westby. Thank you for your time this morning. Good morning. Thank you. Bye. Um, that is Sirica Clark, I say, from Sinn Féin TD, and they are uh, unhappy with the current arrangements. I say it is due to pass in the Dáil uh, today. The cabinet are expected to uh, to make the decision for the deal for moving the National Maternity Hospital, which of course is based in Hollis Street for the last is it nearly a hundred years or more, uh, now to the campus of St Vincent's Hospital in Dublin. But I say the catch there is that the St Vincent's land uh, is still under trust of the. Uh, the uh, Sisters of Charity and um, Sinn Féin would like this uh, to be on state-owned land rather than on a trust or on this lease deal uh, for how long it lasts. Uh, That's the argument. We'll see how it bears out today but I say it looks like the Cabinet will pass it today after a two-week delay. Now pressure is mounting on the Government to clarify when this year's Leaving Search results will be issued. Uh, Leaving Search due to take place in about a month's time but emerged yesterday that the usual mid-August date is likely to be delayed because of pledges that this year's exams won't be graded any lower than last year's, while provision has also been made to hold a deferred sitting of tests in the event that some students are affected by COVID during the initial run. So uh, we're going to talk now on the phone to uh, Dr. Joseph Ryan from the Techno- Technological Higher Education Authority, his former academic registrar at AIT in Athlone as well. Good morning, Dr. Ryan. Good morning, Aidan. Lovely to speak with you. Uh, so tell us, you have concerns about delays and uh, the knock-on effect it will have on the uh, third level. Yeah, we've registered concerns on this because of the timing. You've described it very well. There are two issues. One is on holding the grade profile consistent with last year, and that gives effects on uh, the number of people who will be presenting with very high points. So there's a, an inflationary element in that. Uh, and that will have knock-on effects. But the second piece is the one you describe around the timing. So in a normal year, uh, August, mid-August would be the time for the publication of results. Last year, because of COVID, uh, that was delayed into the start of September. But this year, um, various accommodations were given for students over the COVID time, and quite understandably, as students might have been um, contracted COVID at the time of examination, it would have been very unfair for those students then to be told uh, your, your, your next recourse is next year at the Leaving Cert. So there was, a, there was a facility given to repeat a certain number of examinations. It now is the proposal that be extended to include other ailments and conditions and bereavements, but the scope of that is not known. So effectively, you're looking at a repeat leaving cert, and that's going to knock the date considerably further. The concern for higher education institutions is that we're now a month away from the leaving cert, and we're not in a position to make plans for the commencement of the new academic year. Uh, Can you talk to me about the grades inflation for this year, um, that it has to be in line with last year? What effect will that have on entry into courses? Will that have a major effect on that uh, in terms of offer of entries as well? It will do. It will do. Uh, The the Minister, again, the, the motivation behind this, one can fully understand, is to keep the same grade profile. Now, that will certainly benefit a number of students, but it would also disadvantage some of those students and indeed other students. So if you think of the CAO points as a currency, the currency is going to be slightly inflated this year. But if you're presenting with uh, results from other years, and quite a number of students do, again, their currency has remained at the old value. So they're going to be disadvantaged through that. 
And even students who do get the advantage of this year are now going to be competing with more students who are coming in with the same benefit for the same limited number of places. And that, as you can understand, in a marketplace is going to make things quite difficult. It will indeed. And just uh, in terms of those arrangements, so for for um, students who may contract COVID, uh, let's say in the days leading up to an exam or need time afterwards, and also allowing for other ailments, what type of time frame is envisaged uh, added on to the normal leave insert? Because normally leave insert would start around the 7th, 8th of June and would be finished in a, maybe a two and a half week period. How long have they allowed after that for, for pupils to uh, repeat exams that they might have been able to attend? Well, this is the difficulty, and we, we simply don't know. So the, the leaving cert will run as it will normally run, but the discussion now is almost like running a second leaving cert after that. And if you consider from the SEC's point of view, the State Examinations Commission, that means you've got to put in a whole new process, you've got to triangulate that, retriangulate that, but you also need a whole new set of examiners to examine those. So the danger is that this will run on for you know two, three weeks additional, That would mean that incoming first years may not be coming into their college until October. And that has huge effects. It has effects, the most obvious one is on accommodation. So if you take the colleges within the remit, you know, if you take the broader Midlands region, if you take Setu, the new university down the southeast, or if you take TUS, uh, they don't have dedicated student accommodation in the main. And if returning years have already taken up all of the private accommodation, it puts incoming first years at quite a considerable disadvantage. So when do you expect uh, the government might clarify this situation? I know you've called on them. Uh, has there been any moves or any indications that you'll know fairly soon? I may say we're only a month month away now from the leaving. Well, we're, we're, pressing, we're pressing that decision to be made as quickly as it possibly can. We realise the difficulties. We understand that. But obviously, one has to put criteria around, you know, who can do a repeat examination. That, needs to be, that, that decision needs to be made very early. And then the SEC needs to have the resources to be able to turn that around very quickly. But the, the critical thing here, Aidan, is that we determine as early as possible a date to try and give support to students, give them certainty, and to allow uh, HEIs to make their plans. Okay, and just one final question for me then. Uh, Have you made similar arrangements at at higher level, in the third level, for students who might experience similar difficulties? Have those arrangements been in place for students at third level? Yes, yeah, a lot of accommodation has been put in for students. Um, uh, and, And by that I mean, you know, facilities for repeats, for additional supports, et cetera. So there's been huge learnings, in fairness, right throughout the system from COVID. All right. Listen, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you talking to us. Um, You're very welcome, Aidan. Thank you. That's uh, Dr. Joseph Ryan. He's uh, from the Technological Higher Education Authority, and he's a former academic registrar at AIT, or now TUS. Uh, Time now is uh, 10.30. Time for us to take a break. We've got the Community Diary on the way, and Health Matters as well. If you want to contact the programme on that, it's 083 30 10 103 uh, for your text and WhatsApps. Now, if you'd like to make contact with us, it is Health Matters, and we're going to speak to Eamon Brady from Whelan's Pharmacy very shortly. If you'd like to contact the programme, it's 083 30 10 103 if you have any questions uh, for us. Uh, good morning, uh, Eamon. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Morning, Aidan. How are you? Uh, good to talk to you today. Um, Eamon, uh, tell me, first of all, uh, I know we've just, we were talking there a little while ago about COVID and its effects on leave insert and on, on the higher authority at the moment. Uh, what is uh, the state of play at the moment with COVID boosters at the moment? Yeah, so um, I suppose the, 
like it's the the situation now is that um some people are entitled to a, um a second booster um the, the like the the reality with boosters or covid vaccines um and boosters with same thing but um is that you know the you get in, um they, they only last about four months, you know. So basically, after about four months, your immunity wanes. With with um the second, we'll call it the second booster, right? So a lot of people have got their first booster, and but the certain age cohorts of the population entitled a second booster. So at the moment, the HSE or NIAC, who advised the HSE, um, advised that people over sixty-five and um people who are immunocompromised are entitled to a second booster. You have to you have to wait four months from when you got your last um, booster or since you had COVID-19. Um, the over, and the reason for that is that these are the the, part, the, the people who are more um, prone to severe symptoms of COVID-19. You know, for thankfully, for most people, the um, symptoms of COVID-19 are very, very minor, thankfully. But, you know, people are certain, you know, like people, immunocompromised will be going through cancer. Like, for example, I know a, a man that he's, um, he's, in in um, intensive care at the moment because he's he just isn't lucky to get um COVID nineteen while he was going through chemo you know so he's very immunocompromised you know so but like yeah so basically um you get done um for those looking to get their second booster um it's you can get done in your local um um HSE vaccination center like for example in Westmead it's it's most in pharmacies or in GP surgeries not all pharmacies GP surgeries are offering so just check. Like for example, a Wheelands Pharmacy, we offer it, um, and my pharmacy in Pier Street in Mullingar, we do a walk-in clinic every Wednesday. Um, a question I suppose we get asked is, um, how do you know? I mean, people have a good idea if they're immunocompromised, but you have to the HSE basically have to you have to be officially designated, I suppose, as immunocompromised. So when people come into us, um, we have to check check on the what's called the COVAX system, and we just check their date of birth, PPS number, and if it if the HCA designate them as immunocompromised, we can give it if, if they're under 65. And then if you like we'd often have to send people to come in and like it's obvious enough they're immunocompromised, might have severe COPD. Um, but if you're not, what we do is that we ask them to go back to their GP or their clinician, their consultants, and they can designate you as immunocompromised. So that's for under 65s. Over 65s, everybody's um everybody's in entitled to the second booster and there's no charge there's no charge the, for that Eamon the, no no the HSE don't charge charge for they've never charged for COVID-19 vaccines um as well as at the, the moment we're still like what I suppose who who we're seeing coming in at the moment it's there has been like a, a spike in demand recently because I suppose the it's only recently a second booster they offered to over 65s for example so we're mainly seeing older people um we're all seeing people I suppose with that want to travel because some countries, a lot of countries, well, the EU in general, you still need um, um, uh, a, a booster search to um, to travel. Yeah, evidence, evidence of vaccination, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Evid yeah. and um, basically, uh, people people often ask like how like how long does your vaccination search last? So basically, since your primary, you know, so we've all got like I mean, anybody who's got dose one or two or the first dose of Janssen at the time, it's nine months after you've got your last um, initial vaccine that you then to travel, they, they'd be looking for the booster. Now, it's not that you can't travel without the booster. It's just that you have to get the PCR test and, and that's um, that's EU-wide. So we're getting, yes, yeah, so we've got three, three, three main cohorts coming into us. Older people, 
people who want to get it for travel just it's a bit more convenient you know not getting pcr tests and then i suppose a lot of people are socializing more communions coming up um weddings so they just want to get it just to, to protect themselves you know so and it, the thing is it, we're talking about second boosters now um like people who still want to get their first booster you can still get it or even if you haven't been vaccinated you decide to get it now you can walk into like or you can get it done in the same you know the vaccinations at their pharmacies and, and so on um, can i ask you just, just somebody somebody has texted in Eamon, they just said that uh yeah. they've heard that the offaly vaccination center might be closing down shortly are they phasing out the vaccination centers and it moving to maybe doctors and pharmacies I, I think they they will be. I don't. I, I haven't looked it up now. I know the moat is still is still running. I haven't heard anything about it closing down. Um, the like like when you go on the website, um, the HC website, um, you know, say from Moat or Offaly or wherever, it tells you what days, you know, what vaccines. You know, you can't just turn up in these places either. In the sense that you can turn up, but just check. They do. They seem to do different vaccines on different days. So one one day they might be offering under thirties, next day over sixty fives, and so on. So just check before you go. Um, I I haven't heard any if anything official about them um closing down. I say with time they may, but then look, it was like like but thankfully like COVID nineteen is you know it's like due to evolution of the of the virus, it seems it's got less serious. So, but like it probably will be like. Fortunately, there will be boosters going forward, like, you know, more probably for the more vulnerable age groups. So, but I'd say, I'd say eventually, I'm, you know, I'm, I, can't, I can't speak officially for the HSE, but I'd say eventually they probably will and they'll concentrate, you know, like, I suppose it is, um, like, it is convenient enough for people to go to GPs or, or pharmacies. So, I'd say with time they may, you know, but then look, none of us know, there could be new strains come along, you know, so none of us can predict the future on that one. Okay. Know, but, um, can, I, can I ask you just while we're talking about COVID as well, I noticed that maybe a lot of um, pupils who are heading to the Gaeltacht now or maybe heading to certain uh, parts of Ireland on kind of doing courses where they'll be living with other groups of students, that those authorities are asking those students to do COVID checks through their pharmacy to do an official one. Uh, have you been approached by that and how much do you know, how much it costs for families to do that? Particularly, I'm thinking maybe people heading to the Gwildtuk now in the next couple of weeks uh, yeah it's I've... um yeah um yeah it's um yeah because yeah if they're looking for the official one um we we don't like not all pharmacies do it we we don't do it ourselves but um there is certain pharmacies in most towns even if you just google you know or you might have to ring around i know there's certain there's certain um other companies like there's um an austin fire street in mullingar there's a center it's where the old extra vision i should know the name but i can't remember and it's about i think it's about 35 euro um that's for the it's for the ancient ancient test the official most places accept the the certified ancient test you know so okay. yeah I think and at the end of it you get a cert email is that it you have a cert to show yeah, where yeah. you go you get a cert email to you, to you then you know so yeah so, okay. um, somebody has yeah. just texted in there just in relation to booster hi I got my booster in December should I get another booster as I am travelling to Lanzarote in four weeks time I'm under 65 yeah so no the, that, that, that um, booster that, that will last um, at the moment the EU rules nine months that booster will cover them you know for, okay. if they, for travel for not having to get you know so they won't need to get a PCR test you know and they're under 65 they'd only need to get the they can only they only need or decide to get the um the second booster if um if they're immunocompromised. So that person, if they're not immunocompromised, they wouldn't be they wouldn't be able to get the second booster at the moment. Any yet, but they know they'll be fine for travel. It's um 
it's nine months from your from your at the moment you know these rules change change every so often so um but at the moment um that person is fine Damn it. okay so. Yeah. Now, welcome back to Health Matters here, and uh, we're speaking to uh, Eamon Brady. Uh, Eamon is from Whelan's Pharmacy in Mullingar. Uh, good morning, Eamon. Can you still hear me? You can, okay? Yeah, indeed. Uh, uh, Eamon, there's a text in from... Um, actually, I might stick with the boosters. Uh, just a question for more before I get to the other one. My daughter's got their two vaccines last year, uh, but no booster. Do they need the boosters? They're travelling abroad in four weeks' time. Um. If it's last, what if it's nine months? It's basically the rules of EU at the moment. If they're traveling within the EU, um, it's nine months since their last vaccine, so they probably would have got two vaccines at the time. So just get them to check if it's nine months since their last vaccine. If if it is, if it's let, if it's um. It depends. It depends basically. Months. Yeah, it depends when they got them because I know children yeah. children were later, weren't they, to the to yeah. the vaccination so program. A good chance there's a good chance they might be still be within. They might have got it later last year, so they might be within the nine months. But if it's if it's um, if it's the no and they're, if they're not sure, get them to look at a digital search. If they're not sure the exact date, and if it's over nine months, they will need a, a booster. A booster. It's not that you need a booster in sense to travel. It's just that you'll have to. It means it, like you, you can still travel. You just need to get the PCR test and that to, the certified PCR test to travel. But um, but yeah, if get get them to check that, if it's nine months. Um, or if it's over nine months, then they, they will need to, if they just want to save the hassle of PCR tests and more uh, obviously protect themselves and others as well. Get yeah, they may need get, to get, get the, the, second, booster. the first booster. So okay. yeah. A question here. Good morning. Uh, what causes cramps? I get them at night. I take it looks like is it quinine? Q U I N I N E quinine yeah. sulfate tablets. They help a bit. Is there anything else I can try? I'm over fifty and it's male. Yeah, it's cramps is a tricky one. Like um, some people that seem more prone to it. Um, some of it, like it's making sure you're de, de- or sorry, not dehydrated, drinking plenty of fluid. Um, what the, what that person is taking, quinine is really the only treatment um for it. You know, like say people like some of your listeners suffer a cramp and they can try um tonic water. Tonic water has a certain amount of quinine and it can help keeping hydrated and um, sometimes like if you're if you walk like sometimes um if we exercise and we, we see it obviously in in football matches where where players are you know like the, yeah i could even see it in the match last cramp. night i was amazed that some of the younger lads uh halfway through the second half a lot of them had cramp but it was very uh humid last night wasn't it yeah yeah that's it and that means you're just more dehydrated like you know but um, like for that person, like tonic water, like the, the, not going to be much good to them because they're taking quinine, you know, yeah. like there's very like there's not like apart from like you go to the doctor, there's no other medicine as such, you know, I suppose just what like I mean, getting a general checkup. Sometimes it can be a sign just of circulatory problems, you know, like related to your heart, you know, just checking for, you know, just getting your your general um, your blood's done, you know, checking for sometimes i'm not saying it can i'm not going to frighten this pay, this person but um it's not a, some sometimes it can be a sign just like atherosclerosis you know a build up of plaque in her in her um in her arteries and that you know but most likely it's it's not but just to you know if they get get a general check test you yeah. know yeah so the there used to be there used to be products over the counter in pharmacy like crampex and that and they went off the market but what the person is taking yeah what they're doing is is um it's the, it's the right medicine but obviously it's not working on its own you know so 
But um, yeah, and if they are doing a bit of exercise, walk and make sure to stretch before and after, especially after, because this gets rid of the lactic acid and that, you know. So um, yeah, that'd be okay. more general advice I can give. All right. If you want to contact us, by the way, it's 083 30 10 103. Eamon, you were going to talk as well about uh, hay fever. We're into, nearly into that season now and uh, remedies for it. Yeah, so it is, yeah, so kind of May to July is is, is um, prime hay fever season. The reason for that is that um, grass and um, flowers release their pollen at that time of year. It's pollen is the main cause, not not the only cause. People, sometimes we don't realise that dust, mould, um, even skin flakes, you know, like as we, we, we all shed can bring it on. Um, and I suppose, the, yeah, the, we all know the symptoms like sneezing and, you know, some people, some people suffer more at the eyes side of it, you know, watery eyes, itchy eyes, swollen eyes, some people more than the 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 nasal side of it. Some people suffer both. Uh, like over the counter in pharmacy, um there is there's a few like antihistamines will be the most common so mm. um treatment. So antihistamines like you get non-drowsy ones like cetirazine or loratadine. There's a few brands. The, the the generic ones are as effective as the as the brands, to be honest. You're paying a little bit less. There's a new one um on the market um called telfast it used to be on prescription it's maybe just some people it's not that it's any better than um than the other ones but some it's non-drowsy as well but it's just that it um it may if somebody isn't responding say it's, it's a tyrosine they could try telfast it was on it was on prescription up, up until a few few years ago um the and the the drug sorry let's call fexofenadine is that is a non-drowsy antihistamine as well some people find this for antihistamines there's a um there's a one there's an antihistamine called um peritone that's chlorpheniramine is a drug it's a sedative antihistamine so just it's not as um convenient you know because if you during the day it can cause drowsiness and that but some people find that works a little bit better so maybe if you're especially at night time take one of those you know maybe perhaps try one of those if um if the antihistamines aren't working and a lot of people like with more severe um hay fever the antihistamines don't work on their own so they might need especially for the um for the nasal symptoms like the steroid this steroid what's called steroid um nasal sprays over the counter like so um like like you get brands available without prescription like beckonase and um Flixinase, you know, there's other ones on prescription as well, so perhaps try them. Um, there is like actually just going back to the eyes. What I find sometimes is if somebody is really itchy, they might go through here, the really itchy eyes. There's a, there's a drop over the counter called their antihistamine eye drops called the brand name is Atrophine Antistin. So, and um, you see, ask your pharmacist about um, if you can't remember the name, ask your pharmacist about antihistamine eye drops, and they'll give you it's more temporary relief, you know, for a few days. You wouldn't want to use a long term. Um, and how if, often would you if, put them in, uh, Eamon, into the eyes? Um, and once a day? Like three times a day. Three them, times a day. Antihistamine eye, eye drops, yeah. For the nasal sprays, come back to the, the nasal sprays, the, the steroid ones, um, generally once a day. Some of them are twice a day. So generally once a day in the morning. And like somehow when people hear a steroid, you know, you kind of get like that has negative cor- um, connotations, but they're, they're very safe. They're a local effect. And the, the idea is, we'll see pollen and these things, what happens is it causes inflammation in the, the sinus and the eyes. So the idea of the steroid is to reduce inflammation. Um, there is other treatments on on prescription. There's other, you know, so like if, you, if they're not working over the counter, um, you, you best to go to your doctor. There is other antihistamines or, um, like, like on prescription, like desloratadine, which some people may respond to a little bit better and other um, um, 
there's other other um what to call it um um steroid um sprays and that like for more severe cases well there is a few other options as well like ipratropian and that i won't Okay. But I suppose if somebody is very severe, um, they need to chat, to, need to chat to their pharmacist, anyway. Yeah, wait, yeah, but well, I suppose, yeah, if they're, not, if they're not responding to what's, what's available in the pharmacy or even with a doctor, best for the doctor to send them to a, a specialist, an allergy specialist. And there is a couple of things like, be rare enough people have to get this done, like, but you know, there's a, there's a therapy called immunotherapy, it's only done with specialists. We're basically, in very, very simple terms, the doc, the, the specialist, um, expose you to, to the the allergens as they call it you know the pollen and dust mite over a period of a few weeks or months and the idea is that your your body um basically gets used to it and, and stops getting symptoms there's another one if um there's a it came out in the last 10 years called grass x it's basically it's basically a tablet version of pollen and you take it a few months before um hay fever season and the idea is that your body gets immune to the pollen you know so it's a preventive, a preventative yeah. uh, measure. But I suppose it, just the last thing on hay fever, I suppose like some of the stuff, like I'm talking about medication, medication, you know, some of it is as simple as just avoiding, you know, like we can, like you do it on the, on the, on the radio there, you have your pollen count and so on. That's right. Just Google what the pollen count today and in days when the pollen count is high, some of it's fairly obvious when it's sunny days, just, you know, if your eyes are the worst, um, like wear, wear wraparound glasses, you know, like even something as simple as putting Vaseline in your nose to block the, the pollen getting in, having a you know like having a shower when you when you come in to get rid of the, all the pollen off your body and and so on, simple things you know keeping um, windows closed and days when pollen count is high in the car and house you know some simple things like that can can massively help as well. So okay, one final question. We've only about a minute on this, uh, Eamon. Um yeah. Just somebody inquiring about. Um, taking a lot of Gaviscon and a lot of uh, Bicidol just for indigestion. Uh, is there a more effective way or uh, it just sounds yeah. like it's uh, it's going on for a while here? Yeah, yeah. I suppose the first thing with that, if you're getting regular indigestion, especially if you're over 40, it's very important to get checked with your GP just in case it could be something a little bit more serious. Like, you know, um, you know like it could be a stomach ulcer. Um, you could have like... Um, a valve problem there, like Barrett's esophagus would be relatively common, you know, like a, the one I call them the worst case scenario, but just in case, you know, like something like cancer or something, which is, you know, which is unlikely, but just, you know, we have to all rule it out. out yeah. But it's was, but in very, I know you're, you're out of time, but just very quickly, if they try what's called a proton pump inhibitor, so they're available on over the counter in pharmacies. So you, it's Isomeprazole, so Nexium or Emazole with the brands, or there's one called Omeprazole, Losec, to be, um, they'll be they work they've basically worked by reducing the acid in the stomach and they're probably a little bit better than the likes of gaviscon but you can get them on prescription either from your doctor but um most importantly like get them to speak to the pharmacist or um but if it's going on and especially if you especially if, if it was a little bit older if you smoke things like that here you know it's like you know and i suppose like like going back to what we were saying, prevention is better cure. Just watching your diet, you know, it's I know it's it's fairly obvious, but spicy foods, fatty foods, exacerbated, you know, some you know, so um Perfect. there is, yeah, if they're they're looking for something a bit stronger, yeah, ask the pharmacist the isometrazole or or um they come in tablet form, the pharmacist will be able to advise them on us. Okay.
Eamon, thank you for your time today. I appreciate you coming on to us. Okay? Thank you, Aidan. That's uh, Eamon Brady. He's uh, at Whelan's Pharmacy in Mullingar and he was dealing with our health matters today on Midlands 103. Now, welcome back to the programme. It's Aidan Barry sitting in for Will Faulkner today and uh, last night and it was in uh, O'Moore Park uh, in uh, County, in Port Leash, of course, and it was the the minor, the letter, uh, championship final in hurling and I'm joined in studio by our commentator for Midlands I was listening to you Joe Troy is here in studio good morning Joe good morning Aidan uh, good to have you with us uh, first, of, first of all before we get to the match a message came in on Midlands 103 last night at about 10 past about half past 8 would you wish my wonderful son Joe Troy a very happy birthday I hope that was Mammy anyway (laughs) (laughs) commentating from Moore Park as we speak up awfully that was from Catherine Troy happy birthday Joe thanks a million Aidan yeah good good birthday present from an awfully perspective wasn't it just wasn't it just so tell us but first of all um, the the game itself was very novel in that normally we're used to seeing Kilkenny or Wexford or Dublin in there like Kilkenny have a huge record in it so it was quite a novel pairing to see awfully in it wasn't it yeah and look first you have to obviously Obviously, there had to be a winner and a loser, but you know, Leash were full value for a performance yesterday. You know, both counties reasonably starved of success at this level, and you know, there's so much mutual respect there. You know, there's neighbours, there's crossover between work, family, cousins. It was a real novel field, but you know, fair play to Moore Park as well yesterday for hosting. I know they had to deal with a massive, massive crowd. Uh, it ran off without really a hitch. You know, a bit of a delay um, to the start. Small of the show. delay at the start, yeah, but nothing and, major. And no. also half time. But you know, see those kids out in the field at half time yesterday. I know it wasn't maybe the best convenience for players but you know their, their memories are going to last them a lifetime and I think if either side wanted um, to not win themselves they'd have wanted either Lee Shroffley to win you know it's such a competitive thing in Leinster year on year playing at Kilkenny at Dublin and Wexford and you know the great thing about it is Leash are still in the championship you know they go back into that preliminary uh, quarter final they're there with Clare and they're there with Galway I wouldn't bet against Leash and Offaly possibly meeting again. Um, obviously, Offaly are now on one side of the draw, Tipperary or in the other, and the other semi-finals will be sorted out. But it's real uh, progress for two teams that were starved of success, particularly on the hurling front. And I think both teams, um, irrespective of Offaly winning last night, can can both uh, build on this. And you know, Leash were and either team expected to get to the final at the start of it because they were in a kind of a lower tier to start, weren't they? Yeah, probably. Look, there was a lot of internal confidence, particularly around this Offaly side. And um, the whole way up along from you know under 14 development stage they were proven to be able to mix it with a lot of the stronger teams uh, a lot of challenge matches which you can't read too much into had suggested um, that they had the form and of course the clubs uh, particularly Kilcormac Kalahi have had a lot of underage success they had you know a backbone of that team yes I think they had five starters maybe four or five more in the panel and, and Daniel Hand who was, was sick for the match yesterday would almost be a guaranteed starter on that team so you know by their success and what other clubs are providing the likes of Carrigan Riverstown the likes of you know you had Tober there yesterday you have Lusma you had a good spread of clubs knocking around you have Tullamore with a few you have uh, Balamir Doro and it's just it's it's a real spread of you know it's not the non-traditional side you weren't dominating with Borough with Rhinus with Clarine with Drumcullen uh, with Kennedy had two on it um, and it's just there's so many people putting their hands up and there's so many people maybe starting to get involved more and more in hurling and it's it's particularly with the work that's going on across all the clubs you know Leash are putting a lot of development GPOs on the ground Offaly are doing the same um, it starts in the schools uh, there was a quite confidence about maybe Offaly with this team and as Leo Connor rightly said last night hopefully it's just the beginning they'll have to dust themselves back down to 
today there'll be a lot of tired sore bodies on both sides but uh, Leash will be out before Offaly again um, obviously before Offaly played a semi-final but I think it's it's a huge occasion there'll be a huge emotional high and a low for both sides yesterday but to play in front of that crowd uh, whether you're from Leash or from Offaly it's just, it's just going to stand and a half thousand people. It's, it's unbelievable and you'd kind of be lost in Croke Park or Moore Park the sideline is right up against you the roar when both teams came out yesterday mm. it was such a novel uh, feel for both and you know, I don't think they'll get it hard to top that regardless of what they do in their prospective careers last night was a magical night and an occasion for both sides to be really really appreciative of and like people might criticise it that neither team got a chance to play in Crow Park but Moore Park was the perfect venue for it wasn't perfect it? and a Monday night flood late I don't know I think there was 21 52 seater buses came in from Offaly Leash were there in droves in, in, in the blue and white uh, all the school kids would have been encouraged from both sides to get out and like most of the players that played yesterday were born in 2004, 2005, 2006, so they haven't seen success. They haven't mm. been even young kids seeing success um, with either Leash or Offaly uh, across hurling and, and football to an extent as well. So what it will breed uh, for both sets of supporters, because them young Leash fans will go home last night, they'll want to be the, the, the next Quinlan, they'll want to be the next Deegan, you know, and they have heroes now. And of course... As I said last night in commentary, last night wasn't the end for either team. It's only the beginning. Um, mm. Leash might not have won the trophy last night. They're still in the All-Ireland Championship and they have a super platform like Offaly have to really build. You have to remember these guys, the entertainment they provided, they're only kids. They're in mm. transition year. A lot of yeah, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds. Yeah, and then the Lions made a fantastic point last night in commentary that you were saying they're maybe at under-17 grade that Offaly and Leash might not have been expected, but... Probably skill was winning out in these matches. If you go um, back Enough. to the minor under 18 level, the likes of the Dublins, in particular with the population, they have that physical side. They can pick really, really big guys where it was probably a game of skill was winning out in this championship uh, for both Leash and Offaly. And I think they really put on a fantastic display. Of course, the Leash lads would be disappointed today, uh, but they can be certainly proud of their efforts. And it's just... It, there's so much you have the slagging and you have the banter and uh, with neighbours and, and the crossover but there's such a healthy respect there between Leash and Offaly too that it's just a pity that Offaly had to beat Leash at that stage Exactly yeah. tell us about what's going on at Underage to, to build this momentum because I know I'm, anybody who drives let's say from Tullamore to Boris is familiar with the fateful fields there near Kilcoe yeah, and like, so on look, the what's going on in Leash and what's going on in Offaly at Underage level well, I suppose I can speak more from an Offaly perspective. You know, from, um, we'll say, the last county board executive, they would have put a lot, um, led by Tommy Byrne, of, of proper uh, structures in place in terms of getting the faithful fields as a base uh, for training teams. Uh, they would have appointed a lot of the management structures that's there, and they deserve a lot of credit. And, and since Michael Dignan's executive came in, they probably look to drive it on to the next level from a fundraising side of things, from getting more coaches on the ground, starting with the schools, because... In the last 20, 30 years, there's been a massive drop-off in, you know, what St. Brennan's Community School have been doing, Kilcormick Vocation School, Killina, all our national schools that feed into them. They've probably dropped from maybe the A grade down to maybe B and C hurling, but they're starting now to get success at those levels and come back up along. The underage structures within the clubs and within their own academies are really starting to thrive, and it was up to each individual club uh, to take on um, right from a nursery age and build actual nurseries and build um, academies within their own clubs. And that, that adds... and that's aided by the county board trying to get more and more games development officers on the grounds and into the schools. That's where it starts, that they're coming, you know, the basic set of development, the basic set of skills, and there's so much work going on in the clubs. Like, you look at, I mentioned Karma Kalahi yesterday, success breeds success. You know, them guys playing yesterday were six or seven when their particular club made a breakthrough at senior level, and they have so much coaching going into their own club. I see my own club, a smaller club, we have a nursery system in place in the school, uh, the same up in the GA club. 
every club is following suit and it's because of that work that's been done on the ground makes it easier integrated back into a county setup. But there's very, very strong leadership there. There's very strong delegation. I know Leash of a new executive gone in as well. They're trying to follow a similar protocol and it will bear fruit because Leash and Offaly and Westmead and, and teams around the Midlands have to do so much more uh, considering the revenue and also the population that the likes of the Kilkenny's, the Dublin, the Wexford, the Corks of this world have, but slowly but surely the work on both sides is starting to pay dividends. And one thing I noticed last night, I was looking on the side and I could see Johnny Pilkington was there and of course uh, Michael Dygan there from the uh, county board and also Kevin Martinson playing on the team. There's a great heart back to the 1990s, to the hurling greats, uh, 94 and 98 with that team. There is and, and like... Johnny's a great hurling brain, you know. Um, he has his own individual and, and unique style of communication and, and his thoughts in the game, but he's so well respected. And Leo O'Connor has come in, he's five years there now, awfully took a gamble maybe going to Limerick to get an outside coach yeah. at that level. But it's, it's proved dividends. Leo has surrounded himself with, with infectious people, like see Huey Hannon there as a coach. He's involved. God, since I was a, a chap going to summer camps, Huey was there and he's involved in coaching kids and... You know, Martin, he was a selector last night and they really um, developed these young lads on and off the field. They're a lovely group of fellas. Um, the game yesterday was played in such tremendous spirits. There was no, there was no like malaise or, or dirty pulls no. or anything like that. It was literally a game of two halves. The first half, very tight, was only two points in it at half time and a great, uh, great free taking by both sides. You had Ben Deegan for Leash, was it? And yeah. you had Adam Screeny for Offaly. Yeah. For Offaly, yeah. Good guys uh, at the freeze, weren't they? Really yeah, good. look, the game would have been scattered but nerves. Um, Leash maybe just set up to get a, a foothold in that game to set up maybe a bit more defensive than the purists would have liked um, you know a lot of times they had Quinn left on side one with maybe two or three around him and he also had to contend with James Mahan who was outstanding at full back so mm. he was just probably shading that duel overall uh, whereas Offaly were patient um, they were playing against the breeze in the first half which a lot of Offaly playing maybe better ball get screeny in particular on the ball and they won a lot of frees but you know, the likes of Killian Martin in the middle of the field, they worked tirelessly off the ball to set up uh, these scoring chances. And it's just awfully had more of a system and they stuck to it. Um, I think Leash would have been hurled if their system worked. I don't think it did. I think Leash had enough talent to maybe push on, mm. push players further up the field and, and maybe take a gamble on trying to break down that awfully side. But there was wayward shooting on both sides. You know, you get young lads there, the full crowd maybe shooting on site. But I just thought over the course of the match, Offaly were probably better set up. Uh, they probably had a greater spread of scores was the big thing because Leash were heavily reliant on, on Ben Deegan in particular, whereas Offaly, their two wing-backs scored, their two midfielders scored, and five of the starting six forwards scored, all from play. So when you have that kind of platform to build from, it was huge. Like Tarragainen was exceptional yesterday. He went off with an injury, come up to half-time, thought his game would be cut short. He got the open and point of the game he came back on and was a colossus at right half back the two cornerbacks um, were, were outstanding as well I just thought it was more a sum of the whole collective for Offaly um, that they really played into a system and I just think Lee should be disappointed with that that maybe they just didn't back themselves that bit more um, and in terms of a collective forward unit The long range scores by the Offaly um, Ravenhill Ravenhill Dan Ravenhill two yeah. points empty from out on the wing early in the second half and then I think the wing back after that was it with another their long range there were three or four long range scores from out on the left hand side uh, that were very important because Leash it looked like they were starting off with a bit of momentum at the start of the second half and then Offaly got these real sucker punch scores that all of a sudden put a bit of distance between them they were two points up all of a sudden I think it went to six points six, up yeah. Yeah. and Ravenhill was outstanding um, I think look 
I know Killian Martin deservedly got man of the match, but Ravenhill was was up there. Like for the work he done in the first half, he came back close to Brecken Cavanagh, really protected that half back line, mm. won a lot of ball there, wasn't was sacrificing what he could do going forward course, to really yeah. build a platform there. But he grabbed the game literally by the scruff of neck after half time, got two huge points, got a couple of possessions. Now he had a couple of wides to be disappointed with, but if you don't shoot, you won't score. Exactly, but yeah. awfully a Donald Shirley, and you know, what a story that is. I think the first Tuberman to win a, a Leinster Provincial medal in hurling and wow. and that's great It's it, the more people we see from both sides of the county and from the non-traditional or predominantly strong football clubs it's brilliant to see and he just w- was outstanding yesterday along with Terragainen and Brecken Cavanagh at centre back that whole half back line was Offaly's nucleus along with their two midfielders to really uh, build a platform for them to attack and it just it, it, they had so much leaders they were playing on both sides lads beyond their years you, know, you have to remember these guys are 16-17 but they really served up a feast of hurling yesterday. Oh, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. So where do they go from now? Offaly or straight into a semi-final? Straight into a semi-final. Tipperary will be the opposite side. Um, Galway, Leash and Clare will, will vie for the other two spots. So that's the beauty of the minor championship this year that you get a second bite of the cherry. A provincial final might work out for you, but end of lines headed last night Stephen Byrne agreed it, you, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that Leash and Offaly could end up meeting in an All-Ireland final okay. now Tip are a fine team they won on penalties against a brilliant Clare, Clare side, side as well so right, yeah. you know Offaly can only look after themselves Leo O'Connor said look they'll get back to recovery today and there was a lot of tired sore sore bodies cramping up mm. yesterday it, it was a lot of going there's a lot of nerves in them they'll probably get back to training maybe Thursday or Friday they might go to a swimming pool or something tonight and they'll be ready because when you're young you only get one chance at this you know and I think Offaly and Leash respectively will focus their camps again they'll pick them up and settle them down uh, conversely as well and it would be great for, for hurling around here because I think outside uh, of Tipperary, Galway and Clare, any neutral would be rooting for either off or at this stage. Right, brilliant. Well, listen, Joe, well done on the commentary last night. It was really exciting. It was a great, it was a terrific game. Really, really good game. And... Um, uh, as I say, it's great that both teams get to fight another day as well. I know Offaly are victors and they're the ones really uh, doing well today. But as I say, it was, uh, it's great that both teams get to go as well. And of course, Westmead, uh, great match on Sunday in the seniors. Uh, Absolutely, it was a good. It was a good few days for uh, Midlands hurling, wasn't it? Yeah, do you know, Leash and, and Westmead will still have to play that relegation uh, playoff at, uh, in the coming week. Um, do you know, Offaly are still in the Joe McDonough hunt. Mm. Um, they'll be maybe, hopefully, from an Offaly perspective, bypassing one of the counties that'll have to come down. But Offaly have a huge game, of course, against uh, Carlow this Saturday this in Tullamore, yeah. and possibly then a final with Joe McDonough. But again, Leash have been competitive. Westmead maybe more so. Mm. They got a deserved uh, draw that they could yeah, have maybe great. snuck that game but yeah. Joe Fortune has done a tremendous job out in Westmead so far Alright listen thanks for coming in today I appreciate you You're here. welcome okay. in That's Joe Troy our commentator on the big match last night joining us to talk about the big uh, Leinster uh, minor final uh, that took place in Port Leash last night Were you there? We'd love to hear your comments as well 083 30 uh, 10 uh, Terrific match and I say great exhibition of uh, young hurling under 17 hurling from Leash and Offaly last night Now still to come before 12 o'clock today we have our about the house and garden feature brought to you uh, thanks to B&Q and we'll be talking to Noelle O'Donoghue uh, she's from Noelle Interiors in Tullamore so if you have any questions about window dressings or upholstered furniture or uh, any interior design uh, questions you can always text or WhatsApp us now 083 30 10 103. A couple of comments that came in as well we were talking about uh, countries and around restrictions around COVID and COVID certs and COVID boosters uh, there was a text in that said 
said, hi Aidan, it all depends on what country you're going through. You need to check the country first. Uh, for instance, Bulgaria are not looking for COVID certs, PCR or antigen tests anymore. Uh, whereas I think places like Portugal are still fairly strict. Uh, you just need to check the country before you go to your pharmacist, which is a fair point indeed. And somebody who was at the match last night, hi Aidan, it's uh, uh, 15 euro that was the charge last night. Um, given the crowds was there, could they not have reduced it to 10 euro? Would 10 euro not have been enough for the game? I think 15 euro is quite a good price uh, for that. It's a Leinster final, minor final. And uh, for the quality of hurling that was on display last night, I think that's a fair price. But anyway, uh, they did have 12,500 people there at... uh, um, at 15 euro ahead were they charging that for all that because of a lot of children there I know they'd bust loads of children down there and I liked the point that uh, Michael Dygan uh, made um, I heard it on the news a little bit earlier on he was talking about the whole idea of people getting a really positive attitude towards hurling you know uh, really promoting the game and that it was really important for awfully people and young awfully people and all those youngsters who were brought there to the match last night and who were out on the pitch playing hurling uh, on the pitch at half time now I know it was a bit of a headache for the organisers but it was wonderful to see it I have to say and when you have young uh, awfully unleashed people enthusiastic about their hurling they'll want to take it on get involved in the game and we breed better hurlers as a result so a uh, long made live in the Midlands as well it was great to see it last night well done to all involved time now is 11.28 it's Aidan Barry sitting in for Will Faulkner this morning and uh, just a, a text that came in uh, a listener who was listening uh, to Eamon Eamon Brady from Whelan's Pharmacy who was with us on Health Matters just want to let you know that I was in Whelan's Pharmacy last week and got uh, Cetrine it looks like C-E-T-R-I-N-E Cetrine allergy uh, and as as a long time hay fever sufferer I was delighted to get it and it wasn't too dear either at €4 euro a pop so there's a, an option for you if you are a hay fever sufferer Cetrine C-E-T-R-I-N-E allergy uh, it was €4 euro for a box of uh, uh, some of the uh, antihistamine, I presume, um, anti or an allergy uh, for hay fever sufferers. So there you go. Uh, 083 30 10 103 if you want to contact the programme. Uh, still, still to come now, before now and 11 o'clock, about the house and garden. Are we going to be talking to Noel O'Donoghue from Noel Interiors? If you have any questions, 083 30 10 103. It is about the house and garden between now and 12 o'clock, uh, with thanks to B&Q. And I'm joined in studio by Noel O'Donoghue from Noel Interiors uh, Tullamore. Good morning Noel. Morning Aidan. Uh, it's good to have you in us. Just tell us very quickly about Noel Interiors. Where, where are you based? Um, we moved um, we had a shop here in town and we moved out last December to um, the show, a new showrooms out beside the workroom where we make all the curtains which is just outside Dangan. Oh lovely okay yeah. very good okay and talking about curtains you brought in some samples for us this morning as well. I did because I figured you wouldn't really know anything I was talking uh, you're about. You're absolutely dead right there I know absolutely nothing about curtains I see them hanging every day on the windows but uh, after that I can't help you out. Well I suppose lots of people just take all this for granted but there's a lot involved in it and we yeah. specialise in that so we make all the curtains and they're handmade um, um, in, your, in your own workshop yeah. in our own workshop yeah really the two good. girls are out there now working hard I hope okay, um, I'm sure they are um, yeah so um, I brought in a few samples just to show you the um, the difference between a good quality curtain I mean it's not for everybody but some people then if they're doing up a sitting room or maybe a bedroom or whatever they want to get something that looks really well and functions really well and what I'm always saying to people is you know, at the end of the day, when you go to spend money and make decisions, 
it's important to get all of the information and make an informed decision rather than just, you know, assuming that that's all that's available to you or these are the only options that you have. And, you know, as uh, we specialise in this, we're able to give you all of that advice rather than just going out and just buying anything, you know, that you think um, will will do, you know. And what about, let's say, when people come to you, like, uh, what are the factors that will affect the choice of curtain and so on? So maybe taking something like a sitting room, uh, somebody comes to you, they were doing up the sitting room and so on, and curtains are part of that situation. So what type of things do they need to take into account? Size of the room is obviously a first, isn't it? Um, yeah, well, it's the um, person's own personal style so I'm always saying to people it's not my job to impose my personal taste on um, you but rather to draw out of you your own personal taste and um, and with that then it's the size of the window and you know maybe it's a really modern house so you know the the options might be more limited because the expanse of the window could be um, very wide mm. a lot of the new houses have you know those big picture windows you know the glass box yeah and um which is lovely and I love it and I'm not knocking any of that but the the options then become different and you know while we would do uh, custom made curtains um in the more conventional sense which is you know french pleat lined and interlined um which is beautiful on your traditional georgine window um framing the window and draped back into a tie back in a modern house you'd probably want something um much more streamlined and um a lot more um, minimalist than that and um, and there's just a ra- a vast range of options like that. I mean, I have no possibility of going through um, <laughs> with you here, but that's what we would do with um, a customer is to go through all of that. OK, when customers come in, what kind of information do they bring with them? So do they bring photographs of the room? How much information do they give you? Or what should somebody who's thinking about calling into, what well, should they bring? Obviously, it's my job to ask loads of questions, yeah. you know. And, um, and a lot of the time people ring and they make an appointment for a consultation. So I go out to the house first and see right, what's okay. involved, which is great because then I get eyes on and I know exactly what I'm dealing with. Um, but sometimes people just would send in measurements. Um, you know, and then I'd be able to give them uh, an estimate of, you know, on an average price fabric. Um, and on our website, then, if you go into the um, services and all the curtains are listed there, amongst other things, there is a, an actual um, page then it shows you how to measure. Now, obviously, if the customer is going ahead with an order, um, I would measure it properly mm. anyway. But just initially, sometimes that's what people do just to give them an idea of the um, you know the price range that you're looking what at. What do they need to take into account when they're doing a measure? What, like uh, just the width of the window, the height of the window, and then the ceiling um, height as well. All That's right. really all I need. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, I have some samples yes, here. Yes, I was you going want to, to ask yeah. you. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, so this You'll do is your best to describe this because I, I really will be no good at this. I'm apologies. OK, so for that really modern house with a big wide expanse window, this is a lovely arrangement because this is called a wave pleat. So as you can see, um, Aidan, the, the way the, ca- the curtain is actually stacking up is like a wave. So it goes in and out and it's very streamlined and the curtain like hang down, you know, quite neatly straight down. Okay. Um, the rail that this is on then um, is fitted to the ceiling. So it's quite discreet. So when the curtain is stacked back, it can stack back like an accordion, stacked back maybe into the corner that you can't see it. But then that when you pull it across, then you can pull it across a wide expanse, you know. Now that particular, this sample here is made in a voile. Um, This can be great because it's quite light and 
um, you know, it'll screen the sun because a lot of these big windows, um, you know, you get a lot of glare from right. the sun. Yeah, and it can have and an effect on the furniture and on, on yeah, different. Yeah, 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 and well, if you're sitting down at the kitchen table, just having your dinner or on the computer or whatever. Yeah. Um, so this can be great, but without like sort of huge amounts of fabrics or anything. Um, now, there's pictures of this on the website as well. So when people go into our website and they look um, at our services and curtains, they'll see an image of this type of thing. So that's one um, example. Um, another one. Sorry, now. Yeah, that's OK. Bend the way there. Be fine. Um, again, on that very modern window, you can um, use this kind of a blind. So this is called a screen blind. Now, these are not that expensive. Um, okay. So and it's a roller, a kind of roller. So it's it? a roller blind. Yeah. But when you pull that down, you can see out through it. So a lot of people sort of feel that when, you know, you, you put up a roller blind. That you're completely blocked. You're blocking out the world. Yeah. And um, especially for people that are working from home and maybe, you know, they need a blind to pull down so that they can see the um, screen or whatever. But the kids could be playing outside, so they don't want to not be able to see, see all them, of that. Yeah. But the huge advantage is nobody can see in. Right, so they're okay. brilliant because they give you dual purpose. Oh, excellent. Yeah, excellent. yeah, no, they What's are. They're very good. A screen blind. Screen blind, okay. Yeah, yeah. And we do, there's just a standard roller blind, but it's the type of fabric that's used. And um, they're not outrageously expensive as well. And then when it's rolled up, it completely disappears. Now, in a new build, what they would do is they would leave a recess in the ceiling so that the blinds would go into that oh, and you right. wouldn't see them at all. Okay. You know, and it's yeah. very discreet, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, they're they're a fantastic job, and it's the like of that that you know when we we would have all the experience and the knowledge, and and we would be dealing with all the different companies that you know all the different options, you know. Okay. Um, but then, other than that, then we would have this is your conventional Roman blind. All right, yeah. So this is like in a fabric. So it winds up and down, um, but you have the advantage of being able to um, use a fabric so you can bring loads of colour and um, texture into a room, you know. So it depends on the customer and what they want. I mean, straight away, I know you only want the screen blind. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, each to their own and there's nothing wrong with it. And that's my job is to be able to figure out what's the best um, option for you. And I mean, I'm always saying to people as well, it's about form and function first. So, I mean, you know, you're coming for what? Like, is it a bedroom and you want a blackout because you don't want the sun to come in? Um, you have your radiators underneath the window. You know, you don't want to be pulling heavy curtains over um, the heat source. So there's loads of different options and they're all things that I would, people wouldn't even know to tell me. But, you know, we're used to being able to, you know, figure out and ask the questions and figure out what's the best option. Would you have combinations where you would have roller blinds and curtains as well? You oh, you would, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the final option I have here. Yes. So this is um, a lot of what we make. So this is called like a French peak curtain. Okay. Um, so this is using any fabric that we, you know, pick with the customer and maybe the colours and whatever that they want. Um, all of these curtains then are lined and interlined. So you can see that there's a blanket lining between the fabric and the lining. So that gives it, a, you know, um, it's much thicker and heavier, more luxurious. But it's also great for holding in the heat. I mean, traditionally, it used to be to keep the drafts out, mm. you know, in um, old houses. And we right. still do it where there's a listed house and where the windows can't be changed. Can't be, all right, OK. And, um, but for these curtains to hang properly, they're all hand-sewn down the sides. The hems are hand-sewn. All those pleats are hand-sewn. So these are a very bespoke and very, um, you know, individual curtain um, and very well made. 
Okay, yeah. very good. Someone's just texting in there, how do you do wooden shutters? Do you do wooden shutters? We do, yeah. Now, we yeah. obviously, we don't make them ourselves. Yeah. So we're just kind of uh, uh, taking the measurements and sending them off to the company and then they, they do them as well. The wooden sh- shutters are lovely. I mean, they're great. You see, everything has its advantages and disadvantages. Mm. Um, the disadvantage is the slats, even when they're open, you're blocking some of the light, so you don't get all the light in. But they're great then for priv- privacy. Um, oftentimes now, we, we, we would have done shutters, say in a bathroom or somewhere like that, it's lovely. Or if somebody lived on the uh, footpath, you know, the front of the house oh, there right, because okay. people would be walking by, yeah. Okay, very good. And you're able to do them in two halves so you could have the top half opened and the bottom half closed so people can't see you. Yeah, nice yeah. one, nice one, yeah. okay. Uh, just in terms of matching colours then, because the beautiful colours on that Roman blind at the end there, um, what kind of things are you looking for in the room to pick up a colour to match the curtains? What types do you look for when you go in? Um, well, sometimes you just might have a blank canvas, so you're kind of starting off with what you know the customer is is happiest with. But um, um, it may be that the floor isn't changing, you know, so therefore you'll have to work around what that is, you know. Um, as in, if it's a carpet, if it's a timber floor, I consider that neutral. Yeah. Um, it might be that the suite of furniture isn't changing, so then definitely you have, you to, have work to work around that. that. Yeah, yeah. So it all depends on the person's budget and exactly what they're they're doing and whether they're doing a big job or just uh, you know just the window dressings. You know. Okay. Perfect. All right. About the house and garden on Midlands today, brought to you by B and Q. Change is at your command with over twenty four thousand products ready to pick up in one hour with click and collect at DIY.ie. Now, welcome back to the programme and uh, we're joined in studio by Noelle O'Donoghue. She's from Noel Interiors in Tullamore and we were talking all about curtains uh, before the break. Uh, Noel, um, t- tell us first of all, why would you approach somebody in terms of interior design if you were just getting maybe small things done in the room? Why do you consider interior design? Um, well, you know, anybody that's doing a job um, on the house, it's going to cost uh, a few pounds. Mm. And nowadays it's costing, it's costing a lot. It is, yeah. Um, so irregardless, um, you're going to be spending a good bit of money and you need to get professional advice. And I know that people would have architects, maybe if they're doing a new build or an extension. Um, but often architects don't do the layout inside, um, focusing on exactly where the furniture is going to go, therefore where the sockets will go, where the TV should go, you know, all of that type of thing. There might be a general layout, but not the overall layout. And it's really important to get all those things, um, especially if it's in, you know, not a a huge um, area. You know, you Mm. want to maximise the space and make sure that you're getting the best value out of it. And often it's not the greatest time for couples or whoever is doing the house to be considering these things because they might be frazzled from other things going on, either from their own work or other decisions around the house. Well, and especially with the way prices are gone up at the moment as well. Yeah, yeah. But then when you say couples, you know, sometimes I'm marriage counselling as well. So that can be a, a little bit of a problem but um, no we, we take on board everybody's opinions and try and work out because everything has to be a compromise somewhere along the line mm. um, but yes it's really important to get that fundamental um, things um, right to begin with because I mean you know even like from the heating point of view you know that um you know, the room can be, um, you know, all the fabulous decor and you could spend um, loads on it. But if it's not warm enough to go into, people don't use it. True. So, you know, you need to get all those basics um, right first. And um, and then the layout of the room. The layout is really, really important. So we would do all that type of thing as well. So it's not just, you know, your window dressing. It's like um, that's what we would do is take the whole room as a... Um, 
um, from start to finish and making sure that everything um, works um, from start to finish. So what we would do is we wouldn't pick anything in isolation. We would start with the whole room together. Okay. So that's why we would pick um, the furniture, the carpet, the wall colour, the curtains, you know, the cushions, the lamps, the mirror, whatever it is, all at the same time. It doesn't mean that you have to buy everything at the same time, but just now you have a focus and you know where you're going and you can decide where are the priorities. So um, you know, maybe it's the furniture first and then the curtains mm. will come later or whatever. Yeah, I can see people having to prioritise that. They can only do so much at a certain time. Yeah, yeah. But at least if you've done the design, you've given them even the pathway forward as well for it to go. Yeah, well. that even if they're just out shopping in general and there's a bargain somewhere, well, now they know that that particular item will fit into their room and that's what they were looking for all along. And rather than, you know, we all do it. I mean, I have done it as well, where you, you see a bargain and you think, oh, I'll buy that. But should then if it's not going to work with the rest of what you're doing or you're trying to make a whole room work around one little cheap duvet mm. that you bought somewhere, you know, <laughs> I mean, that doesn't make sense, yeah. you know. Um, so, yeah, when we do all the furniture as well, the upholstered furniture. So anything got to do with fabric, we make it. So we make sofas, chairs, headboards, ottomans. Um, and all of these are bespoke. So they can be made in whatever length, size, height um, that suits your room and your needs. You know, sometimes people want them a little bit higher or maybe the room is small and they need a smaller sofa or maybe they need small arms. That's another huge mistake people make is they go into a huge big showroom for furniture and they see a beautiful sofa and because it's in a massive big warehouse, they think that, you know, that'll be It'd grand be in our yeah. for their room. And I see that so um, often, you know, whereas the sofa is way too big for the room or the arms are huge and bulky and they're taking up way too much room and there isn't enough seating space. So all of these things, you know, an experienced person is able to see in advance so that you don't spend your money foolishly. Right, yeah, good point. So yeah, the interior design are very important. So very yeah, important well, it's right. a practical um, solution. It it's not just a luxury, you know. True, true. OK, so talk to me about the furniture, about, let's say, about uh, upholstered furniture then now. Um, yeah, well, now, obviously, we don't actually make the furniture. So what we design the furniture and we pick all the fabrics and then we have a furniture company then that makes all of that for us. Um, so we would do um, sofas, corner sofas, any anything like, and we would design it to suit your room and your needs. That's the main um, thing. Um, and then we have a huge selection then of upholstered fabric um, to choose from, so that we would be matching that in with. Um, in a sitting room, probably the biggest expense that you would have is the suite of furniture. Mm. So we would probably make that the starting point, and then kind of bring everything else then in around it. Um, and there's some fabulous um, upholstery fabrics available now called AquaClean. So these have the function and durability of leather, but the comfort of fabric. All right, okay. So whatever way they're designed and manufactured and treated, um, you can literally wash off I was any household. Say water AquaClean, yeah, so yeah, 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 easy enough to wipe them. Yeah, any yeah. household stain from um, ketchup to ballpoint pen. Um, you know, so sticky fingers, dogs, everything um, is is durable. Now, maybe not quite as easily wiped off as it mm. would be on a, um, leather, yeah. but um, but still removable. And um, so this is a huge game changer because everybody seems to be into the leather suite because they think mm. it's really, really practical. But leather is cold and it's sticky and, you know, in the summertime it's hot. And, you know, so there's a lot of just to leather. It has its place. I'm not against it. But, um, you know, to 
buy this big three piece sloppy sweet is just not our thing Um, and not everyone's thing so it is it is fabulous to be able to use the AquaCleans Very good and that's very recent development you're saying Well in the last couple of years yeah and they're not outrageously expensive so you know we can still do uh, an average um, uh, price sofa in the AquaCleans um, And because it's fabric you can do kind of a few different colours Well at least you have all the options of the colours and then you have the comfort and the luxury you know the, um, leather can be kind of more industrial look as luxurious looking you know so you know sometimes girls they want the practical uh, leather but they want the luxury maybe of a velvet and the AquaCleans come in that Okay yeah. a question in here from a listener who's saying do you recover or upholster chairs? Um, I can recommend a couple of really good uh, upholstery guys that will do it and then we will supply the fabric and go through the, with the customer what's the best options to do and colours and all of that. And yeah. do you find that many people are choosing that option now? Is um, a, reupholstery is Is it expensive? It is and it's not always people think that oh I'm going to save loads of money so really all you're doing is saving the cost of the frame because you still you know if you buy a new sofa or recover you still need the same amount of fabric and the upholsterer has still the same amount of you know labour work so you know the frame is the only thing but if it's a really good quality frame and um, you know that it fits your room it's comfortable and it's what you want well then it's worth it because you are saving the cost of the frame but if it was kind of a cheap sofa to begin with it's probably not worth it because you're kind of really spending a lot of money on something that's, you know, so it's like kind of shining up a car and the chassis, you know, falling apart. Yeah. And after sofas, we've mentioned about sofas and a big expense and the curtains and so on. Where else are you looking in the room in terms of um, expense? Expense, yeah. Uh, Well, I suppose the flooring, but then the flooring has only about 20% of the impact on the room. So, you know, it's not necessary to spend, um, you know, a huge amount of money on the flooring. The biggest impact in the room is the colour on the walls and it's the cheapest thing that you'll buy. Is that right? Yeah. Will you see anything at eye level? Okay. So, you know, the colour in the walls, whatever window dressings you have and your your sofas, you know, like that, well, or say maybe the headboard, you know, anything that's at eye level is the biggest impact. So the floor is only about 20% of the impact. And, um, you know, sometimes it's not necessary. You could have a beautiful room and just maybe put down a polypropylene carpet, you know. Right. Yeah, And there was a phase there uh, a while back where, let's say, people would have a kind of particular focus wall where they would have a very strong colour or a colour different from the rest of the room. Is that still done? Or is yeah, no, it's not. It's not ruled out. It was kind of always there and, you know, kind of a trend of people doing it maybe with wallpaper as well. Mm. So you, I wouldn't rule that out. Um, it depends on the circumstances. But what most amateurs kind of do is the kind of thing, see something maybe on Instagram or Pinterest or whatever and then try and make that work in their room you know and that doesn't always work either so it's about doing it appropriately and knowing where to do it and where it will work all right. and there's such a huge variety of paint and such a huge variety of colour now as well isn't there there's so many options there Oh yeah, um, I mean the paint that we use, we uh, sell Zoffany paint, which is a really you know nice palette of colours of paints. Um, but I also recommend Colour Trend as well. Um, Colour Trend is an Irish company and fabulous paints mm. and beautiful palette of um, colours. Um, 
but th- that's the paint is going to cost the same irregardless the shade that's in it. So it's important to know that you're getting the right shade. Right, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Hence more advice. From yes, the exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> Noel, thank you for coming in this morning. It's lovely no to problem, speak to you. Maiden. And best of luck as well. Where can people get you just again? Uh, um, again yeah, and I have the website noelinteriors.ie and then um, uh, it's by appointment now in the showroom so they can um, find my phone number on the website and give us a call and I'll um, we'll arrange best time that suits. That's brilliant. Okay, thank you. That's uh, Noelle O'Donoghue. She's from Noelle Interiors joined us this morning on About the House and Garden brought to you by B&Q. That's our lot on the programme today. Thanks to Sinead Hubble for producing, to Cameron and to Ellen in the newsroom. Aidan Barry signing off. Willow Callan's here tomorrow and then I'm back with you on Thursday and Friday. Talk to you then.